If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So Vivid Q was a 21 to watch winner in 2021. Um, they've been going great guns with lots of announcements. So I really wanted to get them onto the podcast to introduce them to our listeners and find out all the things that have been happening over at Vivid Q. So I'm thrilled to have Alexandra Petroteska, co-founder and chief operating officer with us today. So hi, Alex, and welcome to the podcast today. Hello. Hi. Um, So I would like you, if possible, just to give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself, if you would, please. And then could you lead in to explain? I think you're quite a unique company in that you're one of five co-founders. That's correct. So I'm going to jump straight in. My name is Alexandra Pendraszewska. I'm the Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder at VividQ. I started VividQ, which is a deep technology company specializing in holographic display, when I was finishing my master's at Cambridge Judge Business School in 2017. I spent four lovely years at the University of Cambridge, and just before launching into my career, I got introduced to my technical co-founders at uh, West Cambridge in the photonics department. We're working on one of the most revolutionary technologies that I definitely had heard about back in 2017, based around computer-generated holography, which is this exciting concept uh, around how to generate three-dimensional projections and three-dimensional display in a very new and exciting way. So do you want to name check your other co-founders? Of course. I started VividQ with my fellow co-founders, CEO Darren Milne, CTO Tom Darren, and SJ Sananayake and Roman Peckhacker, who are our heads of development and are still leading uh, our technical teams. We've been working together for more than six years now, and we are still all together. And so that's been a very exciting journey that we've been sharing since 2017. And how do you determine those different roles? You know, is, is it challenging having five of you as co-founders? I think in our case, it was actually quite natural. So as every early stage company, we have gone through a couple of titles um, since obviously originally when we've been building the company, we didn't have different departments. So we didn't need different heads of departments. We only established our different roles, even within the commercial team, only within the second year of VividQ's existence. So I effectively started off as a head of commercial 
being one of the non-technical co-founders and uh, I used to be responsible for everything from sales to marketing to operations and, and hiring when we were still very much focused around product development. We also, my technical co-founders have since very beginning, they've been sharing responsibilities for underlying platform development and then product development and integration. So it's all been a process, I guess. The easiest role to hire for was the CEO since Darren was the one who uh, got the original group together. He was also the first person from, from the group that I was introduced to back in 2016. The leadership within the technical teams and the eventual role of CTO that's, that Tom took up, I think it's also been just a natural evolution of different interests and skills that we recognized within the co-founding team and also just i think the mutual appreciation that we have for each other's skills which is very helpful you mentioned there in your kind of intro that the company is around six years old now so could you just give us an idea of like the size that you've reached in terms of employees and the kind of stage that you see yourselves at right now there are very many different ways of looking at stages of businesses uh, in terms of the number of employees, we currently have around 50 employees, uh, predominantly full-time based in Cambridge, but we also have amongst the 50 employees to team members based outside of the UK who are supporting our sales efforts in, in Asia, in Japan, and in Taiwan. Majority of our staff are still based in Cambridge, even though we have moved to a hybrid working after the pandemic, uh, most of the people do prefer to come to the office. I am personally based in London, and this is where our commercial team has been based in the very beginning. But I can even see that amongst the commercial team, we do prefer to go to the Cambridge office for the days when we are working in the office and get that exposure to other teams rather than just sit in the co-working space somewhere in London. It's not the the preferred way of working anymore. In terms of funding, uh, which I guess would be another way of looking at where we are in our journey, we have raised just over $23 million over the six years across a few institutional rounds, originally with angel investors and then with uh, venture capital investors from all around the world, actually. And uh, we are definitely at the stage where our technology is now being integrated into consumer products by our customers. So we do feel quite confident about finding the right product market fit and being able to commercialize this exciting technology. So Alex, I think that's a great segue into let's let's talk about exactly what VividQ does. What products are you bringing to market? Um, what, what are you addressing? Through our specialization in, in computer-generated holography, the holographic display technology, I guess I'm, I can already hint that uh, the main advance or, or technological developments that we are focusing on on a daily basis are around holographic display, three-dimensional displays. The product that we specifically built was actually based around the innovation or scientific breakthrough that my technical co-founders came up with around the end of 2016, as I mentioned, when collaborating at the photonics department of the University of Cambridge. And this specific 
advance or the specific innovation was around the way that you can calculate the data that's required for the holographic projection to appear on the screen. So in a huge simplification, the way that the holographic display works is by modulating laser light, uh, which is then reflected off a micro display and the resulting three-dimensional projection, which is that reflection of light that hits your eye, is what we perceive as a three-dimensional object. So the holographic projection is created through this pipeline of getting some digital data, for example, from game engine or or, or from depth sensing camera, then calculating uh, the specific pattern that needs to be presented in the micro display and modulating laser light to then see that digital object as a three-dimensional projection created from that laser light modulation. However, while this technology has been actually known in principle, especially amongst the academics in photonics departments for for decades, the original idea of of analog hologram, uh, which actually everyone can see on their credit cards or anywhere around where those analog holograms are used for security purposes, this principle has been known since 1960s. So as the technology can be deployed in any kind of screen, I guess you've got that classic go-to-market challenge of where do you focus first? You know, you've got, you know, laptop screens, you've got mobile, you've got automotive. How did you kind of prioritize which market to go first for? Universal holographic display technology could in principle replace any digital screen that we currently look at. So when thinking about where we want to bring this technology to the market, we actually started thinking about what are the genuine benefits of three-dimensional display to the consumer. We know about 3D TVs that pretty much flopped at some point because people didn't love the stereoscopic display technology that was generating those images. We know that some people don't really see a lot of benefit from going to 3D cinema. So when thinking about holographic display, we very quickly realized that Augmented and virtual reality markets is where a lot of those benefits of holographic display bringing genuine three-dimensional worlds to the viewer, this is where this, this technology can really benefit the user the most. One of the reasons for that is because even today, first of all, there are very few augmented reality devices in the market and there are multiple technological reasons for it. And there are some virtual reality products in the market, but their use cases are are limited. And also a lot of people find them actually quite difficult to wear for a long period of time, causing nausea and, and headaches. And holographic display by creating digital images in an entirely different way than we do in today's VR and AR, it resolves a lot of those problems. So that was one of the reasons why AR and VR was was the first market that we really pursued with uh, the producers of consumer electronics and specifically applications around gaming, where we focus a lot of our attention today, allowed us to effectively deploy all of those benefits of holographic display to the consumer, everything from preventing the headaches, preventing issues with interaction with digital objects, allowing for arm's length interaction 
So to explain in, in the easiest way, a lot of things that we do in VR nowadays uh, is based on looking far away in the distance because this is what the current generation of VR screens allows us to do most efficiently. However, the virtual world is only really becoming exciting when you can generally start interacting with it and you feel like this interaction is natural. And just for a question, for a, just to clarify, do you need to be wearing some kind of you know glasses or headset to, to be able to see the holographic image or use the human eye? How, how is that working? So when you can think about the holographic projector, it allows you to create images in the way depending on the medium. So if we are talking about AR and VR devices, we are effectively projecting the holographic image directly to your eye so that the interaction is, there is a little bit more control in terms of what you can be seeing and how we can, for example, capture the interaction as well. Because uh, we have to remember that while VividQ specializes in holographic display technology, there are many other technologies that are required for the full immersive experience, for example, in AR and VR. And this includes everything from, from hand tracking, from the way that you are getting the content uh, into the device and the way that you are then capturing the interaction. So while in principle, you do not require any medium to be seeing a holographic projection, AR and VR headsets give us the easiest way to bring this technology to the market because there is already an established use case. There is another route that we are also pursuing, which is taking us away from the need for the glasses, but still is not allowing for fully free floating projections, but for which one you don't need to wear glasses. And this is the head up displays for cars where you're seeing navigation behind or in front of the windshield when driving the car, obviously allowing for more intuitive way of using the navigation where the instructions can be integrated in your own environment, but also bringing a lot of security and safety features. We all know that looking at your phone in your car is usually not the safest way to drive the car. So if you can prevent that and you can provide this instruction as if it was sitting on the road, it allows you to do it way more safely. So for this application, you do not require glasses. However, you still need that device to be integrated into the dashboard. So you're looking through the windshield and this is effectively the medium through which the, the holographic display is working. Eventually, there is nothing that prevents us from, from building a holographic display the way that we always wanted without needing any medium, without needing any device. But the biggest restriction for us as a company that creates underlying technology is the availability of components and the investment that is required to build the whole new device. Hence, our focus on consumer electronics or our focus on devices that are already in the market where holographic display technology can improve their functionalities. That makes me think about you must be working with other companies. You must have collaborations and partnerships underway. Are there any of those that you can talk to us about? We predominantly work with other companies, specifically manufacturers who are using our technology to bring new, better, more innovative devices such as VR headsets or automotive head displays to the market. They are our main customers who are licensing 
the technology, both our software development kits, but also our hardware IP, which we've generated a lot of when effectively working with the partners and working with the customers on those integration projects. Majority of our projects with big technology companies in the AR VR space or in the head of space automotive space is under quite strict NDA. So we're not yet able to talk about them until the products that are using our technology will hit the market, which should happen within the next 18 to 24 months. However, it's very important for us to also base a lot of work that we do around partnerships because again, as I mentioned, holographic display technology is often just one, while important, but it's still just one element of the device. So we have very strong partnerships with companies building tracking devices, with companies building components such as micro displays that we use to generate holographic projections. Uh, we are also working more and more closely with gaming companies that produce content that is then being showcased and used on devices that are using WebQ's holographic display technology. One of the most exciting partnerships that we announced at the beginning of this year was with the company called Dispalex. And this is the company that is building one of the fundamental components for augmented and virtual reality glasses based out, out of Finland that effectively allowed us to bring to the market the first ever prototype of a fully holographic augmented reality glass that we are demoing in our office in Cambridge, something that we would not be able to achieve if we had to be responsible for all the hardware elements ourselves. A kind of similar question, but subtly different. <laughs> you know, respecting the confidentiality agreements, is, is your technology commercially available in any headsets right now, or is it more kind of R&D prototype kind of stage uh, technologies? Our technology is not currently available in the headsets that are in the market. I guess one of the things to remember is that there actually aren't that many still available in the market. And I think even when we're looking at the recent Apple's announcements, even though obviously Vision Pro is going to be a very exciting proposition, I think that it's still very unclear when it will be available, even for testing by anyone but the journalists that were uh, invited to Apple's conference. So our projects in terms of the stage at which we are at, we are currently participating in so-called integration projects. So when technology company already has a very clear roadmap for bringing such products to the market and picked uh, technologies that are going to be used for performing different functions and obviously for any type of augmented or virtual reality product, the way that the user is seeing and interacting with the content is one of the main components. We are currently participating in a number of such integration projects where our technology is being used in the products that will be brought to the market very shortly. So I'm going to move us a little bit into the, the future now, if I may. You've got quite a few foreign investors in VividQ. And I know you said that the team love to come up to Cambridge and all, all be together, but do you intend to keep the business in the UK or do you foresee, is it is it expanding the team in Japan, Taiwan, other places, or do you think that you would potentially move in the future? We definitely don't think that moving the 
core or the heart of the business, which is our technical team where all of the innovations in our products are being developed away from Cambridge would be a good move in, in any way. Hence, we definitely plan to keep our core technical team in Cambridge for a number of reasons, not only because this is, of course, where the business originates. This is where us building our ecosystem and network started. But also looking into the future, we still hire extensively amongst the graduates and not only from the University of Cambridge, but we have team members joining our commercial and operations teams from Angiorasky University. We see a lot of interest from London-based employees to work for an innovative business based in Cambridge and uh, with hybrid working, it's no longer an issue, especially with less than one hour commute a couple of times a week. It's not a barrier anymore to keep our uh, technological team in Cambridge. We do not, however, have customers in the UK and we currently don't even have customers in Europe. So all of our customer work, commercial work, sales work, business development, that's all happening in Asia Pacific and in the US. Hence, we're definitely planning to expand our, we don't currently have teams, we have individuals who are working for the business, supporting those projects, both from the business development and project management perspective. And so that would definitely be the case that as, as soon as possible and as soon as we uh, reach that stage, we would definitely see ourselves establishing offices in Japan, Taiwan, and in the US, where majority of our customers are based. Just so just bringing things back to home again, I mean, obviously, you're not a pure, a pure play gaming company. But you know, as you've described, you know, one of your first use cases is very much linked to the games industry. I think it sometimes surprises a lot of people just, just how vibrant the games community is in Cambridge. Do you collaborate locally with the likes of Frontier and Jagex and Ninja Theory and all these kinds of guys? That's entirely right. I Even myself, because I didn't have a chance to work closely with within the gaming development community when I was back in Cambridge, uh, when we got to this stage of building our demos and developing use cases within gaming, it was quite surprising, but also very positive experience to see how strong that community is in Cambridge. We do currently have collaboration with some smaller startups that are also developing underlying technologies, especially in the content space for augmented reality. And we have been working with them, integrating some of their solutions into our offering, but also giving them an insight into what's really coming up in the gaming space. As I mentioned, we do have a live demo units in our Cambridge office. So we host probably two, three demos a week from people within the tech community, both within Cambridge and from outside of Cambridge, because uh, it's obviously a very exciting insight for anyone in the gaming space to see what's coming up, but also for any gaming company that already developed VR or AR content for the current crop of headsets, these are the people who are the most aware of the limitations of the current generation of those devices. And they have a very thorough understanding of what holographic display can bring to gamers' experience uh, in VR and AR. 
So we unfortunately didn't have a chance to collaborate with any of the bigger studios that are based in Cambridge, but uh, that's definitely something that I would love to see moving forward. And just from the games studio perspective, do you provide like an HDK or an SDK for your technology or is that down to the OEM whose device that your technology is integrated into? How, how does that work? Our SDK is entirely compatible with any content developed in Unreal and Unity, which are two biggest gaming engines. So that obviously makes it very easy for gaming studios that want to trial any content using holographic display technology because effectively no change needs to be made to the project that they already developed in in two of those uh, game engines in order to then be able to generate fully three-dimensional projections. Uh, This is obviously a big benefit to hardware manufacturers as well because originally VR had a big issue of requiring a completely new type of content to be developed for the headsets uh, and the applicability of the desktop developed content versus VR content was quite low. If we were to now come and say, you know, you already have redone all the content for VR and now you have to redo it entirely for holographic display, that wouldn't be a very strong sale. So we made sure that we are fully integrated into that data pipeline and any VR content already developed for the current crop of headsets can be very easily adapted for devices using holographic display. So Alex, a lot has been happening since we first met a couple of years ago. It's really exciting times for you. So what's your vision for growing the business and, and what type of progress are you looking for in the next couple of years? We had quite exciting two years, especially since 2021. We completed our post-seed rounds around July 2021. So just under two years ago. And that was very exciting period, both growing the team in Cambridge, being able to take up way more integration projects. We have expanded our IP portfolio, but also expanded geographically as soon as it was possible. And as soon as the uh, international travel was possible, we were probably one of the first British businesses to get into Japan and into, into Taiwan. So that was definitely great to, to be able to experience that and see. Right now, our main focus is around bringing products that are using our technology to the market with our customers. So moving on from, as I mentioned, participating in integration projects and effectively fine-tuning the way that we can integrate holography into headsets and into automotive head-up displays. Now moving on to how can we make sure that once those products make it to the market, they meet all the requirements of the end customer. So that obviously makes all of our thinking around how this technology is really going to revolutionize how people drive cars or how people play games and really asking big questions around user experience, user safety, and making sure that we can truly scale to being a a billion-dollar business that is effectively powering all of those devices with the underlying display technology. So we are not focusing as much on growing the headcount. This is very much dependent on the progress of the commercial projects that we're involved in, but more looking into how we can efficiently bring those products to the market and make sure that 
everyone will be able to finally experience what benefits it can bring. Uh, we are still very much looking into Japan, Taiwan, and, and the US as our main markets. We are currently also fundraising in those countries. As we said before, our previous round was led out of Japan. We have some American investors on board, as well as British, Irish, Austrian. So we are a truly international company with the heart in Cambridge. I don't think this is going to change, but it would obviously be great to see those international teams that are driving our projects, that are driving our commercial traction grow and support our vision to bring our products to those markets. So so on that theme of kind of uh, unlocking the opportunities, you recently announced a new advisory board made up of like international industry stalwarts. So how has that kind of changed the dynamic of the, of the leadership team and uh, what opportunities is that starting to kind of unlock for you? It obviously helped a lot. I think because our previous funding round was led out of Japan and majority of our customers that we've been working with for the past two years have been based in Asia-Pacific region. It definitely made us move our focus a little bit more to the East. And while the US never stopped being one of the most exciting and probably most promising markets for our technology, we didn't see as much traction there, mostly because we are obviously still a startup and we have to focus on specific applications, specific markets, and be mindful of our resources. So one of the biggest changes that being able to bring that advisory board together and effectively working with them almost on a daily basis, it allowed us to really open up to the US market and especially to California, where majority of the advisory board is based and either reopen or open entirely new conversations with some of the biggest technology companies in California in the US. So for us, it was definitely super motivating to do even more in the US and to make sure that we don't overly focus on Asia Pacific, even though from our experience, this is where the technology has been seeing the quickest and the biggest uptake. And it already resulted in some very exciting commercial opportunities. So first of all, it was extremely amazing to see how much interest there was in what we've been doing, how helpful our Cambridge network has also been in connecting with some of those advisors. One of the American investors that we have on board, R42, are led by Ronjan Nag, who also has been very active in the Cambridge ecosystem and also supported us a lot when putting that advisory board together. So I very much hope that we'll be able to announce publicly some of those projects that we have been discussing uh, since bringing the advisory board together. Really exciting. And we'll, we'll look out for them as, as you release them. So I do have to say, Tong Tong Zhu from Poratech, he was on a, a podcast actually quite early on, and he wants to be the next unicorn in Cambridge. So there's going to be a race. So which one of you is going to win? Yes, we're we're very happy to participate in that competition. (laughs) Ah, touche. Alex, it's been really good to catch up with you today. Thank you very much for spending the time with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And now for this week's Cambridge Tech News in partnership with Business Weekly. We open with two quantum computing stories. Quantum engineering company Riverlane has developed the world's first dedicated decoder chip, 
It's part of the Cambridge company's ongoing work to build a quantum error correction stack that every quantum computer will need to achieve useful scale. Cambridge-based Continuum has created the first quantum Monte Carlo integration engine with some evidence of quantum advantage. This technology is set to score big in the financial sector and is tipped to hit $1 billion by 2032. Now, regular listeners will be well aware of the ARM IPO. Well, that finally happened yesterday with the Cambridge-based company achieving a valuation of $54.5 billion on its Wall Street IPO, the largest Nasdaq float for more than a year. CEO Rene has said ARM intended to further strengthen its engineering teams in Cambridge and elsewhere, which is great news for the city. Now, a quick reminder, while we're talking of ARM, we have a competition running to win a copy of the Everything Blueprint, which is the story of ARM by James Ashton. If you didn't catch last week's episode, we discussed the book and the history of ARM with James, so it's worth going back and checking it out. With the coverage of the ARM IPO yesterday, James has been interviewed on Bloomberg, CNBC and the BBC, so it was a bit of a coup to get him on the Cambridge Tech Podcast. To win a copy of the book, simply email us with the name of the ARM co-founder that has appeared on the podcast to date. Send your answer to info at cambridgetechpodcast.com by the 28th of September and we'll announce the winner during our first anniversary show, which is on the 1st of October. To promote the book, James is appearing at the Bradfield Centre on the 11th of October. To register, just visit our events page on bradfieldcentre.com. That's it for this week. Join us next week when we will be covering the Business Weekly Awards. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. Supercomputing is becoming an essential tool of scientific and medical research. Operating award-winning data centres, KO Data is proud to host Cambridge One, the UK's most powerful supercomputer accelerating health research. With computing power and space available and excellent connectivity to Cambridge and the cloud, KO Data is ideally placed to support advanced computing organisations of all shapes and sizes. Get in touch today at kodata.com slash contact.